You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. We've been working pretty slowly through the first three chapters of Genesis over the last couple of months, and that was a deliberately slow pace as these chapters are foundational to our understanding of the rest of the Bible. As I've said a number of times, the seeds of virtually every important doctrine of the Christian faith are planted in Genesis, and especially in the first three chapters. Today, though, I'm going to give an overview of the rest of Genesis in one hit, and I'll explain the reason for that later on, but we've got a lot of ground to cover in one message, so I'll only be picking out some of the highlights, some of the, what I think are the most important passages and ideas to be found in there. Last week, we read the verse. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. It's the first promise of a rescuer to come to humanity. And as we now know, that rescuer was Jesus Christ, the promised seed of Eve. The Lord God said to the serpent in the garden, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this first gospel was contained in the curse on the serpent, the devil, and it was a promise that the devil and his seed, which includes his angels and those humans who align themselves with him, either knowingly or unconsciously, would never overcome the woman and her seed. Now, the woman's seed refers primarily to Jesus Christ, but it also includes all of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ. Now, the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, in fact, is a record of this conflict of the devil and of, of uh, the devil and Jesus Christ. And it already has a guaranteed outcome right from the very beginning. Genesis 4 then opens with the birth of Adam and Eve's firstborn child, Cain the first human being to actually be born on the planet rather than created. And it's uh, sometime after Cain was born, Eve gives birth to their second-born child, a son they name Abel. And already in only the third person on the planet, the corruption of sin has taken such a hold of Cain that in a fit of jealousy he murders his younger brother. If Eve was hoping that one of these two men would be the promised seed. Her hopes were quickly dashed. Eve then gives birth to Seth, the first of the godly line that's descended from Adam and Eve. And then eight generations down through Seth's line, Noah is born. But by this time, the earth has become so filled with corrupt and violent and wicked men and women that God decides to wipe it all out and start again with Noah and his family. And it tells us in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah found grace. Well, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. So God gave Noah the task of building a huge floating vessel called the ark to contain his family, that is his wife, his three sons and their wives, 
and a sample of all the land and bird animals on the earth. Then God brought a flood that wiped out every living creature, human as well as animal, on the planet, and life began over again through Noah. And God made a covenant with Noah that he'd never again wipe out the earth with a flood. Every time you see a rainbow, that's a sign that God is keeping his covenant with Noah. After the flood subsides, God gives Noah and his family the same blessing that he gave to Adam and Eve at their creation. Be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth. So the flood event is in many ways a looking back at creation and it's a recreation of the earth. But it's also a looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. It's a hint of what is to come, not only for the earth, but for humanity. For those who have put their trust in the Lord will be given this planet to enjoy, this recreated planet to enjoy one day. Hebrews 11.7 tells us that Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith when he obeyed God. As if to make the point that sin is deeply embedded in us, Noah, this righteous man, gets falling down drunk and passes out buck naked in his tent. And his second-born son, Ham, sees him in this state. It doesn't tell us what went on, but it must have been pretty shameful for Ham's descendants are cursed by Noah, while the other two brothers are blessed by him. And skipping forward several chapters to Genesis chapter 15, we read the story of Abram, soon to be renamed Abraham. Abram's an old man when we pick him up in this story, probably around about 75 years, and he's childless because his wife Sarai is barren. Is this the end of the line for the promised seed, the woman's seed? Is this a victory of the devil over God? Not likely, because God knows how to keep and his own and to fulfil his promises to his people. Genesis 15.5 tells us, And the Lord Yahweh brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, count them all. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the first explicit connection between faith and righteousness. And it's a key verse in the Bible. And it's quoted several times in the New Testament in explaining salvation by grace through faith. But what is righteousness? How can it become our possession? It's good for us to ask this question because righteousness is still the result of faith. And righteousness is what is credited to us when we become Christians. Righteousness is that condition of right standing before God, the status of being declared not guilty in the sight of God and therefore welcome into his presence. And notice it's not based on our good behaviour. It's not based on our obedience to every point of the law. It's not based on our ancestry. Rather, righteousness is granted on the basis that we believe the promises that God has made, just like Abram did. Abram believed God's promises, even though every circumstance 
said it was ridiculous to believe. His wife was barren and he was well past his fertile years. But still, he believed that God keeps his word and he trusted God to fulfill his promises in and through him. To have that righteousness that was counted to Abram and counted to us also means that no accusation made by us, made against us by any enemy, spiritual or human, will stand up in the heavenly courtroom before the judge of all the earth. And therefore, we have peace with God. There's another significant event in Abram's life in the passage that immediately follows that one. It's an event that shows the unbreakable covenant that God makes with his people. Now, a covenant, an agreement or a contract is normally made between two people. Each one agrees to the conditions of the covenant and signs on the dotted line, so to speak. So when you take out a credit card, you enter into a form of a covenant with the bank. The bank agrees to lend you money to pay your bills and you agree to pay the bank bank back the money that you borrowed plus interest. If you break that covenant, the bank will pursue you to get its money back and you could face significant penalties and potentially even jail time. Ancient covenants are the same in principle although they rarely had written contracts. Instead, they acted out their commitment to the covenant in in much the same way that we see in the last half of Genesis chapter 15. Now, often the two parties to the covenant, covenant would take an animal and they would kill it and cut it in half. Then they would spread the two halves apart and walk between them. It's a pretty gruesome picture. But this ritual... By this ritual, they're declaring publicly that if either of them should break the covenant, that this would be their fate too, to be killed and cut in two. That's how solemn and serious a covenant is. Now, to confirm the covenant that God's making with Abram, to give him descendants by his own loins, the Lord tells Abram to kill a cow, a goat, a sheep, a dove, and a pigeon and to spread them out on the ground. This is serious business. Five animals are slaughtered to establish this covenant. So someone is serious about this. Now, Abram spends the day chasing the crows and the eagles and the vultures away from the slaughtered animals, but eventually he gets too tired and he falls asleep. And while he's asleep, the Lord Yahweh speaks to him, saying, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And to confirm the covenant, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch representing the Lord passed between these pieces. It's an unusual picture and it's not the regular two-way covenant where both agreed to the terms this is an unconditional covenant for Abram this is God saying to Abram I will do this myself there is nothing you need to do and if I fail to fulfill my covenant with you let me God be cut in half 
Now, the idea of God being killed and cut in half is absurd. But what God is telling us is that this is an unbreakable covenant because he is making it and not expecting or requiring anything of Abram. Friends, as those who have put their trust in Abram's God, we too are recipients of this covenant as Abraham's descendants. It doesn't matter if we can't trace our physical ancestry back to Abram. The Bible calls Christians the true descendants of Abraham, his spiritual descendants. And when God makes a covenant with us, such as the new covenant that's spoken of in Jeremiah 31 and is symbolised in the Lord's Supper, he doesn't break it. We are currently some of the offspring who dwell in a land that is not ours and who are afflicted in this place. The Bible calls us sojourners, visitors, essentially, to this land. We're no longer citizens of of this world, though, but now, thanks to the faith that counts as righteousness, we're citizens of heaven. And the same promise of judgment on the nation that would enslave Abraham's descendants applies to us also. But we're enslaved by this world we live in. And Jesus said the devil was its ruler. And we're enslaved by sin, which is judged and condemned in Jesus Christ. And in his death, the last enemy whom Jesus defeated by his resurrection. So we await with expectant faith for our liberation from this world, from our sin and from death. And we look forward to our entry into the promised land. These seemingly Simple verses are profoundly important to our understanding of the Bible and to our understanding of our salvation. Now, Abram does get impatient, as we know. Even though God had promised him descendants through his wife, Sarah, Now he's now in his 80s. So in his wife's insistence, he sleeps with his concubine, Hagar, and she conceives. But the offspring, a boy they name Ishmael, is not the promised child. In fact, this child grows up to be an enemy of Abraham's line. To this day, the descendants of Ishmael, the Arabs, are sworn enemies of Abram's line, the Jews. That in itself is a picture of how things go wrong when we take matters into our own hands. When we try to run ahead of God's promises and God's plans, when we do things our way, not God's way. In Genesis 17, God renames Abram. He changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. But by now, Abram's 99 years old. He's been waiting nearly 25 years for this promised son. But God will keep his promise. And a year later, Isaac is born to the formerly barren Sarah. You can imagine the joy that Abraham Abraham and Sarah felt after decades of longing and waiting for a child of their own and how closely they must have held him and held on to him. But when Isaac is a young man, Abraham is told by God to do the unthinkable, to kill his child, to kill his beloved son. This event, as gruesome as it sounds, is actually a beautiful picture of the future, and of a far more important event. So Abraham takes his son, 
his only son whom he loves, the scripture tells us, as if to emphasize to Abraham the sacrifice he's about to make. He takes his son on a three-day journey to Mount Moriah. They take fire, firewood and fire with them, but no lamb. Now, Isaac knows how this goes. If you're going to do a burnt offering, you need a lamb to sacrifice. And just on a side note, the Bible tells us that Abraham had other children, including Ishmael, who is technically his firstborn. But it recognises Isaac as Abraham's firstborn child because Isaac is the child of the promise. Isaac is the son that Abraham trusted God for rather than the son he conceived through his own efforts. Anyway, back to the story. They're on their way. And Isaac says to his father, but where is the lamb, father? And Abram replies, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering. When they finally get there, Abraham builds the altar. He lays out the firewood. He ties up his son and puts him on top of the wood. Then he raises his knife to plunge it into Isaac's heart. Isaac, his only son, his beloved son whom he loves. And there's not the slightest hint here that Isaac fought back against his father. Abraham's maybe 120 years old by now, and Isaac is young and strong and healthy. He could have easily overpowered his father. But it seems he submits willingly. Who knows what Isaac was thinking at the time, but he never resists. But before Abraham can bring the knife down, an angel of the Lord stops him. And instead, Abraham looks around and there is a sheep caught by its horns in a thorn bush. And Abraham takes that sheep and kills it as a substitute for his son. Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he, he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. We considered that God was able even to raise him back from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. God did provide the lamb for the offering. He provided and accepted a substitute in place of Abraham's son. This harkens back to that first sacrifice in the Garden of Eden, when an innocent animal gave its life to cover over Adam and Eve's nakedness and sin. But that's not the end of the story. This story, like so many others in the book of Genesis, is a picture of something greater to come. It's a picture of another son, another beloved son, who would be offered up in sacrifice more than 2,000 years later. And on that first Good Friday, God the Father offered up his son Jesus, his son whom he loved, on the altar of the cross. And this son also accepted his fate without a murmur. When Jesus was placed on that wooden cross as the lamb provided by God himself, there was no voice to stay the executioner's hand. This time, the death of his only begotten son was the result. The crucifixion took place on Mount Moriah, 
the same location where Abraham offered up his son as a sacrifice. And that picture of Abraham traveling three days to Mount Moriah, no doubt with a heavy heart at the thought of having to kill his beloved son, it's a picture of the three days that Jesus spent in the tomb. And the angel staying Abraham's hand and letting Isaac up is a picture of the resurrection. As I've been saying for several weeks now, all of the important teachings to be found in the Bible find their seeds and their foundations in the book of Genesis. The next fascinating story that points to greater realities is found in Genesis 24. In the story of Isaac, the one who continues the line from Eve through Abraham and onto the promised seed. By now, Abraham is 40 years old and it's time to marry. So Abraham, uh, sorry, Isaac is 40 years old and it's time to marry. So Abraham follows the ancient custom of finding a bride for his son, who all these years later still trusts his father and his father's decisions. There's none of this going to nightclubs or parties or signing up to e-harmony in those days. No, your father was the one who chose the bride for you normally. So Abraham sends his servant back to the old country to find a wife for his son. And his servant finds Rebecca there, a beautiful young virgin woman who fits all the criteria of what he'd been looking for for Isaac. And she willingly leaves her home. And she leaves her family to travel back with the servant to be united with Isaac, her husband-to-be. But before leaving, the servant prepares her to meet her new husband by giving her a gold ring, adorning her with jewellery and marking her with a sign of her new commitment. Genesis 24.53 tells us the servant brought out jewellery of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. It's a beautiful story, but it's like everything we're looking at. It's more than just a story. It's a picture of a greater reality. Isaac, in contrast to his father and his future sons and so many other people of his time, was monogamous. He only ever had Rebecca as his wife. No other wives, no other concubines. He remained faithful to her and her alone all his days. In this sense, Isaac is a picture of Jesus Christ. But it is also a picture of Christ in the sense that he trusted his father implicitly, that he willingly submitted himself to become the sacrificial offering for his father. The servant that's sent to the far country to find a bride for the son is a picture of the Holy Spirit coming to collect a bride, select and collect a bride for the son of God. Rebecca is a picture of the church, perfect and pure and prepared for her husband. And so also the Holy Spirit marks us with a seal that shows our new commitment to our husband, Jesus Christ, and he works within us to present us as pure virgins to him. As Revelation 21.2 says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Genesis 24 is a picture of future and greater realities. And the last thing I want to look at today is the birth of Isaac's sons. 
It's an important event in biblical history because it teaches us about that controversial doctrine of election, about how God chooses who he will save. Unfortunately, this is not a popular doctrine, but it really should be. If we understood it, it would be. Rebecca was barren too, just like her mother-in-law, Sarah. But Isaac prays for her and she conceives twin boys. And while they're still in the womb, the Lord speaks to her and tells her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. The firstborn she names Esau, her secondborn Jacob. Now the name Jacob is Jacob is an accurate but an unfortunate name because it means deceiver. Fancy calling your son deceiver. But that's exactly what Jacob turns out to be for most of his life. Anyway, in ancient cultures, the firstborn was always the most blessed and most privileged. He was the most loved by his father because he was the child who opened his mother's womb and he received a double portion of his father's inheritance, but not Esau. Romans 9, chapters 9 through to 11 deal with this particular event and it shows the opposite of the usual firstborn privileges that we would expect Esau to receive. Instead, it shows Jacob is chosen as God's favourite. Romans 9 verse 10 tells us, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. No wonder people don't like this passage very much. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But isn't he a God of love? How can he hate Esau? Why should he hate Esau? What's Esau ever done wrong before he was even born that he should deserve God's displeasure? I reckon Romans 9 through to 11 has probably caused more arguments about among Christians than any other passage that I can think of. For it makes God sound unjust or callous or fickle, and we know that God's not like that. Is he unjust? Not according to the Apostle Paul. Rather, Paul tells us that God is merely exercising his right to choose or his right to reject anyone he wants to based on his own good pleasure. After all, doesn't the potter have the right to do what he likes with, with the clay he's working from? Isn't he allowed to make a fine china dinner setting for royalty with one piece of clay? And isn't he allowed to make a toilet pan with another piece? Who would argue with that? The potter has the right. And Paul's thesis is that that, that is exactly the situation here with the birth of these twins. God is creator of both of them. And he's allowed to do whatever he likes with his creation. It's not as if anyone, Esau or Jacob or anyone else, deserves to be treated with grace and mercy and compassion. In fact, it's just the opposite. 
because we all, Esau and Jacob and every single one of us, deserves condemnation. We deserve punishment and death. We deserve to be hated. And that's what the whole Bible is about, our undeservingness, if you could use that as a word. But God's mercy to those who put their trust in him. All the characters in Genesis are flawed, every single one of them. In fact, all the characters in the Bible are flawed, all except one. They're all shown as they are, warts and all. And they are all broken in some way. Even the ones who seem the best, the most like Christ, like Isaac, are flawed and broken and sinful. But through it all, we see the grace of God extended to his chosen ones, passing over their sins due to the faith that they put in the promised seed of Eve. None of these people knew how long it would be before this seed appeared, but they trusted God's promises that a day was coming when all the sacrifices would cease because there was one who was able to put an end to them all and put an end to them once and for all. And when this promised seed did that, he would also put an end to sin. And my goal and my desire in this quick overview of Genesis is that you would see some of the amazing treasures contained in here that you would take the time to read it and study it for yourself. Think about it. Think about the connections. Think about the pictures. There is nothing in Genesis, nor in the rest of the Bible anywhere else for that matter, that is there by mistake. There is nothing there that is filler material just put in to take up space. All of it is there because God put it there for our benefit. Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. Not just the bits we like, all scripture, not just the bits we understand, all scripture, not just the bits we agree on, all scripture, every word of it is there for our good, even the boring old genealogies that the man of God, Paul goes on to write, may be complete and equipped for every good work. I encourage you to dig into it for yourself. When you read a passage, think about where else you've seen something similar. Get yourself a good concordance, one that lists every word in your preferred translation and tells you where to find them. Do word studies. See where else and how else that word is used. Get hold of something like J.I. Packer's Concise Theology. It's a book that explains in brief and easy to understand chapters the most important teachings of the Bible and become a lifelong student of the word of God. It reveals its greatest and most precious treasures to those who take the time to dig into it deeply. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even though there are things in there that often don't make sense to us, things that we don't know why you've put them there, things that may seem boring, Lord, every word of it is there 
because you deem it to be necessary for our spiritual health. Lord, I pray that you'll give us that same heart to value your word and to dig deeply into it, Lord, not just skim over the surface of it, but to think about it, to think about what it means, how it applies, what it teaches us about you, about Jesus Christ, our Saviour, about ourselves, about our sin and about your grace. Lord, as we read your word, would you prompt us to think about other places in your word where we've seen a similar thing, like the story of Abraham offering up his son Isaac as a sacrifice and how that would prompt us to think of your son that you offered up as a sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, help us to gain deeper insights into the grace and the mercy that you extend to us every day of our lives, Lord. Help us to rest in the new covenant, Lord, that you have made by the blood of your son, to put a new heart, a new spirit within us, to write your words on our heart. Help us to rest in that and to trust you for our salvation. Help us, Lord, to see all the things that we've seen over the last several weeks in your word in deeper and deeper ways that establish us so strong in your word that we never turn from you, Lord. Lord, it grieves me and it grieves us to see those who not so long ago may have been faithful, committed, even enthusiastic members of churches that have since turned their back on Christ and renounced him. Some who have lost interest, some who have turned against him publicly. Lord, would you bring repentance to them? Would you bring them back to that well of life that is your word? And we pray, Lord, that that fate never befalls us. So, Holy Spirit, would you keep us stirred always to seek your word? For, Lord, when we have the, your word, there is nothing more we need. There is nothing more we need, Lord. So, Lord, this morning we affirm, reaffirm our trust in Jesus Christ and our faith that you have spoken truly in the Bible, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you will uphold us through every situation and every problem of our lives by that life-giving word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.